Hi everyone. Thank you for joining Wilson Sincini's Electronic Gaming Group podcast. I'm Mary O'Brien, an associate at Wilson based out of the Palo Alto office. I'm thrilled to have you join me as I interview several of my colleagues and dig into key topics surrounding early stage companies with a focus on gaming specific issues. The information in this podcast episode is for general information purposes only and may not reflect current law in your jurisdiction. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. And this information is not intended to create and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No listener of this episode should act or refrain from acting on the basis of any information included in or accessible through this episode without seeking legal or other professional advice from an appropriately licensed professional in your state, country, or other appropriate jurisdiction. We're pleased to have Thomas Flock of Counsel in the Antitrust and Competition Group joining us from our Brussels office and Brendan Kaufman, Senior Counsel in our Antitrust and Competition Group joining us from our Washington DC office. Both Brendan and Thomas will be speaking at the Games Industry Law Summit in Lithuania on September 7th this year. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Would you mind starting off by telling us a little bit about yourselves and your experience in the gaming space? Hey, thanks, Mary. Uh, thanks for that great introduction. Uh, so, hi, everyone. My name is Brendan Kaufman. As uh, Mary mentioned, senior counsel in D.C., focusing on antitrust, uh, you know, working on all areas of antitrust litigation, M&A, investigations, counseling, pricing, uh, the whole gamut. Um, and that's really come in very helpful for uh, for the gaming space as we're jumping into some discussion today. Uh, for me personally, uh, this is really a pretty magical convergence of uh, my avocation and my vocation, as Robert Frost would say. So, uh, you know, my entire youth uh, up through college, you know, even as an adult, I love gaming. Um, you know, it's been a, a great way for me to uh, uh, both release a little bit and also get to know some more people. It's, uh, you know, it's a great community behind gaming, and that's uh, one of the things I like most about it. Uh, you know, as an antitrust attorney, every once in a while, a gaming question would come up. Uh, you'd have a pricing question or distribution question, uh, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, smaller companies asking how they can get onto platforms, uh, a little bit of negotiations. But for the most part, um, it's been a, a little bit of a quieter space, which always surprised me, uh, given uh, both, you know, the size and, and frankly, the value of uh, the gaming market as a whole. Uh, but what we're seeing now, and I'm sure Thomas will agree, is this, uh, you know, sudden emergence of gaming as a hot topic in antitrust. Um, uh, and that really cuts a lot of different ways, right? And in, in some ways, it's uh, a thing for companies to be aware of, um, be a little protective of. Uh, and in other, other aspects, it's a way for companies to uh, create some opportunities for themselves. Uh, so, you know, hopefully I'm looking forward to a, a great discussion today on those topics. Um, yeah, kick it over to you, Thomas. Yeah, thanks a lot, Brandon. And uh, Mary, thanks a lot for organizing this podcast. As... You already mentioned, I'm Thomas Pflock, counsel for Wilson Sonsini in the Brussels office. And it's a great pleasure doing this with you today. So uh, just like for Brandon, electronic gaming is not just a topic that's relevant for me as a lawyer. Uh, it's also a topic that's close to my heart. Uh, I've always loved gaming and I guess my, my parents were probably afraid. I loved it a bit too much as a teenager, but in a way, this was probably also a generational question. I mean, it's, it's, it's not a coincidence that you will hear Brandon and me today as, uh, besides us being antitrust lawyers, uh, we're part of a generation that grew up with gaming and maybe has a bit of a different starting point when it comes to questions related to the topic. So while electronic gaming probably is just a, a side topic for many antitrust lawyers, 
uh, one industry of many that they're dealing with. I think Brandon and I also, um, and also some of our antitrust partners at Wilson Sonsini, we're dealing with this topic for quite a while, and it's a very happy coincidence for us that there are so many antitrust topics surrounding electronic gaming nowadays. And I think there will be many more topics following. I mean, one topic that we're probably still going to dive into that I think is a big thing is going to be the metaverse. I think that's inextricably linked to gaming. But as I said, I think we're still going to touch upon this later today. Thank you both. And Thomas, that's a great segue into our first question about we've discussed a few key topics on this podcast that some early stage companies may be aware of already. But antitrust is not usually an area that most early stage companies are familiar with. So I was hoping on a high level, could you both run us through your practice and the types of issues you tackle? Sure. Thanks, Mary. So um, this is Brendan again. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I, I really do handle all areas of antitrust law. Um, you know, I really pride myself on being able to uh, just as easily help a company with a merger as defend a litigation as initiate a complaint to a regulatory agency if they are experiencing uh, negative effects of anti-competitive harm. Um, you know, I think just taking a step back and trying to lay the groundwork for what we're talking about today is, you know, people may not, it's, it's a word that's in the news a lot. I'm sure people have heard it, uh, but maybe not know what antitrust is generally. Um, you know, it used to be the case definitely when I started my career that, you know, Basically, anytime I was getting on the phone, uh, I had to start off by apologizing that I had to be there because when the antitrust attorney shows up, it's just bad news. Um, but that's not really the case anymore. Uh, antitrust is definitely much more day to day uh, engaged with clients. Um, you know, really, it's, it's matters of competition, and competition is what companies do all day long. Uh, so, you know, the need for uh, antitrust counseling uh, has grown and pervaded all areas of companies. So I like to think about antitrust in three different key areas. Uh, so first is agreements between uh, different players within an ecosystem. Uh, so those can be horizontal agreements. Uh, so horizontal agreements can be very, very bad. So that's price fixing. That's the type of thing you can go to jail for. Don't price fix. Uh, it can be good, right? It can be uh, pro-collaborative, you know, collaborative agreements between competitors to make something new. Uh, agreements can also be vertical in nature. So either supply agreements or distribution agreements, uh, other terms between uh, companies that interact in the same space, even if they don't uh, address the same customer base or supplier base. Uh, the second main area is uh, what you'll hear is unilateral conduct. Uh, that just basically means what one firm can do. Uh, and in the United States, that means what monopolists can do. Uh, monopolist is a legal term. Uh, so there's certain things that need to be established for a monopolist to be considered a monopolist. Uh, but for the you know the simplicity of the conversation, we're just talking about how big firms can behave via uh, v others in their ecosystem, uh, competitors, uh, consumers, suppliers, everything like that. And the third area where uh, possibly the audience is a little bit more aware of uh, is uh, M&A. So um, the antitrust agencies throughout the world uh, make sure to protect competition by enforcing in the United States what's called the Clayton Act. Uh, ensuring that uh, no harmful mergers uh, get through. Um, they look at, you know, as in simple terms, they look at mergers that either uh, uh, substantially lessen competition, um, and that can be either horizontal or vertical. Um, I'll kick it over to Thomas to explain the same concepts as they apply in Europe and abroad. Yes, thanks, Brenton. Happy to. Uh, and at this point, I should probably also stop briefly and explain uh, why why I'm here on this uh, podcast episode and why 
Europe and abroad are even relevant for our listeners? Because I think that most of them will probably be based in the US. Their companies will be based um, there as well. And at least some of them may ask themselves why they should care about antitrust outside the US. And first part of the answer is that antitrust authorities don't care so much where a company is based, as long as the activities of a company have an impact on local competition within their jurisdiction. And the the second part of the answer, while basic structures and, 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 and concepts of competition law are identical around the globe, uh, the application of antitrust is not, and some companies have learned this the hard way. Uh, regulators in different jurisdictions have different traditions, different enforcement priorities, and if you're having customers or suppliers outside the U.S., uh, you definitely want to have an eye on these other jurisdictions, and, and that's where our Brussels and London teams come in, uh, and that's where I come in for this podcast. So to answer this question more precisely, Mary, in our practice, I'm also uh, dealing with the types of issues that Brandon has just mentioned. So I'm dealing with M&A questions, agreements between competitors, uh, agreements within supply relationships that may be anti-competitive cartels, uh, but also unilateral conduct by dominant players that may foreclose competitors or uh, exploit consumers. And in many regards, uh, European authorities tend to be stricter than U.S. authorities. Uh, in other regards, uh, namely M&A, the, the commission sometimes is also more lenient or at least more pragmatic. And uh, it's important for our clients that we can give them our European perspective on these questions uh, because a, a green or an orange flag in the U.S. might sometimes still be a red flag in the EU. Uh, even more important, even when the legal assessment is uh, much the same as in the U.S., the, the way to present cases uh, and arguments in Europe are often crucially different. Uh, and just sending a U.S. memorandum to an EU authority will often not resonate uh, with them in the right way. Uh, and, and finally, we have to keep in mind that in the EU, we have a two-level system. So we have the EU on one level, uh, with the European Commission as an agency, and we have national jurisdictions on the second level. And the interplay between both of them can actually be quite complex. But before I'm getting uh, too much into the weeds here, so Brandon, anything to add from your side on the U.S. Uh, agencies? So it used to be, and is still the case for the most part, uh, that there are really three ways where antitrust can uh, come into your lives. So the, the first is the federal agencies. Uh, so the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice share uh, authority to enforce the federal antitrust laws. Uh, it's split up between them in a uh, opaque and confusing and uh, frankly unknown way sometimes. So by industry, uh, one agency tends to have more familiarity with a particular industry. Uh, and so that agency tends to take on uh, anything that comes up there. Uh, but as industries converge and new ones emerge, uh, there's been more and more of what are called, uh, uh, you know, turf wars between the, the two agencies as they uh, try to figure out who reviews certain things. Um, and I think that's apparent even in the gaming space, as you've seen uh, both agencies take on uh, different high profile deals. Uh, 
secondly is uh, the state attorneys general. Um, you know, they've always had the ability to enforce antitrust laws. Uh, historically, they come and go, but they're definitely in a waxing moment. Uh, the state AGs are uh, as aggressive and uh, eager to enforce as ever, um, and we actually spend uh, you know, a, a considerable amount of time interfacing with uh, attorneys general from different states on different matters. And the final area is private enforcement. So um, uh, there's a ton of private enforcement. It's an entire cottage industry in the United States. Um, even in the gaming space, there are you know, a couple of very notable private cases going on right now. Um, so yeah, just to lay that out there. Thank you both. And so from the sounds of it, it really comes across that antitrust comes into play with larger players in the industry. Does antitrust have any relevancy for earlier stage gaming companies? Yeah, so for sure, uh, antitrust comes into play for earlier stage companies in, in, in a variety of ways. Uh, so, you know, the, the first is there are standard antitrust laws that even the smallest companies need to make sure that they are uh, aware of and compliant with. Um, and, you know, a, a small early stage company really doesn't have to worry too much with complying with uh, Section 2 of the Sherman Act, which is monopolization. Uh, but Section 1 of the Sherman Act, uh, that's contracts and conspiracies and restraint of trade, obviously comes into play. And I think the the number one thing to be aware of in this space is uh, the renewed focus by the Department of Justice uh, on hiring practices, uh, especially in big tech generally. Um, and we know uh, from uh, just observing the news just how aggressive the Department of Justice has been in pursuing uh, employment cases. Uh, these tend to manifest in two different ways. Uh, the first is uh, agreement between competitors on what wages they'll pay. Uh, it can be to particular people, can be to certain positions, uh, can be to entire units, but um, any agreement between competitors on what they will pay is uh, illegal. Um, and the Department of Justice actually recently, although they lost, have tried to prosecute these cases criminally. Uh, a second way that this manifests is no poach agreements. Um, this is one that probably is a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, fitting to the conversation as uh, it, it used to be, you know, 20 years ago in Silicon Valley, uh, not uncommon for companies to agree not to poach each other's uh, uh, employees because it just became an, an arms race. Uh, and obviously in this space and gaming in particular, like it all comes down to talent. Talent is the absolute most important thing. Uh, the the people developing, designing the games, executing, negotiating the deals, like these are how these you know great products get to market. Um, so I just want to make sure people are aware of that. Uh, so we all know there's different types of games, such as mobile games, console games, and PC games. Are these regulated as one market, or what do regulators consider when it comes to the gaming worlds? Uh, so you know historically, gaming has been defined by uh, a pretty stark difference between being highly fractured at the development level and you know, modestly concentrated at the distribution level. And so what I mean there is that you have a lot of different uh, game developers um, and a lot of people working on creating these games, uh, making sure that the art is good, making sure that the uh, features function as they're supposed to and that they're engaging the consumers. But then when you actually want to get that product into the hand of consumers, there's been just a few different ways you can do it. Um, so obviously there's the, the big three consoles, uh, there's PCs, and then now mobile is obviously emerging. Um, you know, what that's m meant, uh, you know, the way that's manifested is uh, what has typically been a little bit of a uh, siloed approach 
of by the agencies of analyzing, you know, how particular people play particular games, uh, trying to figure out, you know, cross elasticity of demand between platforms or across games or genres within a certain platform. Uh, they are now emerging towards a much more holistic review. Um, and this is something that's happening in real time. And I think, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the high profile mergers that are in the news. Um, but the agencies are using these mergers as a way to better understand the industry and are starting to learn that um, the old ways of analyzing these deals may not be uh, the most effective. And I think as I say that I need to do a full disclosure that I do represent Bungie in its acquisition by Sony. Um, and Thomas, see if you uh, added some more on, on the EU there. Yeah, sure. Um, before I get to the EU though, uh, maybe let me make a more general point, um, what, what difference does it make whether regulators consider gaming markets as broad or narrow? The sometimes unfortunate truth is that regulators often leave open the exact definition of a market and then tend to go with what suits them best at the moment. So in a, a merger situation where the regulator wants to argue that the two merging companies are competitors and uh, close scrutiny is, is needed, uh, maybe an in-depth investigation. Uh, the authority may then want to define markets as being very broad to generate that overlap. Uh, for example, that there are wide overall markets for console or mobile games. On the other hand, if it's clear that two companies are both creating, let's say, AAA ego shooter games for the Xbox, or something like that, then um, the authorities may argue that uh, it cannot be excluded that the market is that narrow, AAA ego shooters on the Xbox, uh, which would then possibly create a higher market share of the merging entities that could make it easier to intervene or uh, ask for commitments. And I'm exaggerating slightly uh, to make the point clear, but something like this often absent happens in praxis. Um, so there may often not be one market definition uh, that allows you to give a straightforward reply to your question, Mary. But uh, last year's decision on Microsoft Zenimax did find that there's no clear support for segmenting different markets within mobile games, console games, and PC games. So those are all great points. And I think uh, you know, you can see the way that it's changing in the United States, at least, basically in real time. So, I mean, there are a couple of high-profile litigations in the United States. There, there's obviously uh, Epic Apple. Uh, so you basically have, uh, you know, uh, one platform litigating against the other platform for access to the consumer base uh, and what the terms of that access will look like. Um, my firm is involved, although I'm not personally, uh, my firm is involved in a, a litigation in Washington, and that is on behalf of a game developer, but it's also uh, been consolidated with a class of consumers uh, against Valve, and that is based on uh, allegations that Valve um, imposes what's called most, most favored nations terms uh, uh, for access to its platform, which means that uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, developers cannot find, a, it's impossible for them to price their products differently elsewhere. So they can't go to a different platform and try to compete by price without also having to reduce their price on Valve and the, you know, the allegations there that's uh, anti-competitive. At the same time, you have, um, you know, very high profile mergers and that are being investigated 
Um, the Microsoft Activision uh, is obviously uh, the elephant in the room that's being investigated globally. Um, we also have Sony's acquisition of Bungie that's being investigated by the Federal Trade Commission. Um, you know, and it's in, in both of these, it's wide ranging questions on all types of aspects of the company. Um, and it's really as much, you know, from my opinion anyway, as much of a learning exercise as it is an actual genuine investigation. Um, you know, there's uh, trying to figure out whether or not to look at uh, each game by title or game by developer or game by genre, or are we focused on games that have microtransactions? Or are we focused on games that have a subscription model? Uh, what's the importance of ubiquity? You know, is it important for a game to be uh, cross-playable across different platforms? Uh, you know, if all of these are important, how do we actually like weigh their different importance as we evaluate overall competitive effects? How do consumers respond? How is the market going to respond? As you know, I, you know, I think we can all agree that this is uh, still a an emerging market, still a market where a lot of development is going to occur. So, what are the uh, what are the effects? What are the negative consequences of regulators getting involved in a market that is uh, both functioning and growing um, at the same time? Uh, you know, there's uh, it's probably reasonable to worry about the effects of, uh, especially at the distribution level um, of consolidation. Uh, you know, I've talked to some friends at the agencies um, about what types of things they're thinking about, and one person made a, a really good comparison to me and you know something I've been thinking about for quite a bit because uh, I asked them you know what else does this look like historically like what are you like what are you comparing this to uh, and his answer was uh, the United States beer industry where uh, yeah I don't know for at least some people in the United States will know there's a wide variety of different uh, beer manufacturers you know local small craft uh, IPA different breweries throughout the entire country but when you go to your grocery store, it can be hard to find them. If you go to a restaurant, there's only a couple things on tap. Why is that? Well, um, you know, it's because the uh, the, the large manufacturers, uh, you know, the, the Anheuser-Busch and Coors Miller of the world, they own uh, the trucks and they own the routes and they have the relationships with the grocery stores and the big uh, chain restaurants. And so they can kind of control access um, and the FTC, uh, my friends at the FTC have said that that's the type of thing that they're worried about happening in gaming. They want to make sure that there's not this sudden bottleneck on distribution and availability. The current FTC chair, Lee Duncan, has advocated for a more aggressive approach against big tech companies, which I think you've both reflected in your answers um, before. So with technology, including gaming, advancing at a rapid fire rate, do you consider the regulatory agencies to have the right tools to be able to properly investigate these antitrust violations? Um, to answer your immediate question, whether or not I think the agencies have the right tools to properly investigate, uh, I do. Um, the antitrust laws are uh, written in a way to be flexible. I mean, these are passed in 1890 and, and still vibrant today. Um, you know, they, it, it, I, I kind of argue that antitrust law in the United States is really the, the last true common law. Um, you know, we have a, a very simple law that has evolved through uh, court decisions and agency guidance over the years, um, and th that has allowed it to adapt to different markets and realities. Uh, at, at the same time, um, you know, I think you, you, one can't help but notice in the United States the onslaught of new legislation that is coming in. Um, you know, my, my personal view on this is that it's uh, um, <sighs> 
not well tailored to address the the issues that they think that they're addressing. Uh, to, the legislation is obviously just too captured, uh, as happens in Washington too often. Uh, but it does show uh, perhaps a concern that the antitrust laws aren't being used in the way that they want that you know some people want them to be used. Uh, I also point out that aside from federal legislation, you actually have state legislation now coming into play. So even just yesterday, uh, and the New York House voted out uh, uh, anti-abusive dominance law, uh, which would really be the most aggressive uh, unilateral conduct law in the United States if it were to get enacted. Um, and of course, it, it was voted out of the House before in New York and, and was never signed into law. Uh, but it does show a little bit of a you know evolution in the zeitgeist of uh, trying to make the laws more broad or I don't know, easily applied. I don't know. How about Europe, Thomas? Yeah, so the European regulator has probably given its own uh, answer already to that question, uh, whether it thinks that it has the right tools. It's now agreed politically that there will be a new regulation coming called the Digital Markets Act. And uh, the Digital Markets Act will designate large online platforms like Google, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, obviously, may maybe another 15 to 20 platforms as gatekeepers, and these gatekeepers will face additional regulation on top of conventional antitrust law. Uh, what will be the content of the regulation? It's, it's a very broad set of very, very specific obligations. Um, and I should maybe take out three of them that are probably most relevant for our listeners. So uh, first one is an obligation to provide interoperability uh, large platforms will have to make their platforms, their APIs interoperable with other services. Um, that may mean that Meta have to may have to open its Oculus API or um, uh, Apple its APIs for the for the Apple App Store. Uh, also for for gaming publishers and, and manufacturers um, to an additional degree. A second uh, DMA will address self-preferencing. Can Apple self-preference its own music services or its own gaming services compared to competing app providers such as, say, Spotify or Epic? Uh, this is one of the key questions in a whole series of pending lawsuits uh, around the globe and, and specifically also in the EU. In the future, there will be a clear prohibition for such self-preferencing whatever that means. So uh, will, will this solve the problem? I, I think we'll face a lot of uh, litigation around the question, what does self-preferencing actually mean? Third uh, important practical point for our listeners, I also want to mention that there will be an enhanced requirement on data access uh, for business users. So right now it's often quite obscure for games companies, how their content is distributed on platforms like Meta, Facebook, iOS, App Store, uh, and even more important, how their content is used by the players, because sometimes also just the platforms have these information. And we get questions from our clients quite regularly uh, that would like to get more insight into their data and, and the data of their users. And I th think that this is also uh, a key topic in a key battlefield uh, in the context of uh, the metaverse, just to touch upon that topic briefly, uh, as 
in the metaverse, let's say the manufacturer of a virtual reality headset, they will collect tons of further data points that will be extremely relevant to the providers of the underlying uh, games or uh, immersive worlds or whatever um, that uh, this reality headset is used for. And all this being said, I mean, DMA will still take some time to take effect and uh, we'll probably not see any cases before 2024. But I should also mention that other jurisdictions, for example, Germany, they already have similar rules in place uh, for quite a bit. And so there is already leverage uh, if companies want to bring cases uh, to enforce, for example, their access to data. Thomas, I think you raise a, a really good point and you know, one that I know that uh, my colleagues and I have been thinking about, and you know, we just don't know the answer, and that is the the interplay or the intersection of, you know, antitrust and gaming on the one hand, and data concerns on the other. Um, you know, I know for certain that the FTC is is considering it, uh, you know, considering data in a, a general sense uh, when they look at these markets, both in terms of mergers and uh, potential conduct cases. But to me, it's not clear that. Uh, there is a connection or what that connection would be. And I'm curious if you have, uh, uh, you know, opinion from, from Europe where there's a little bit more uh, or maybe of a developed consensus on the interplay between uh, data and competition more generally. Yeah, glad you're raising that. So data and competition is a huge topic in Europe, at least since maybe 2019, where the, the German authorities started running a case against against Facebook, now, now Meta on the use of user data and, and uh, maybe the uh, use without probably asking for consent by these users. And without going into detail on this case, I mean, it has become pretty clear that data has a competitive dimension, a very strong competitive dimension. Those players who have access to data and don't have to share this access with other companies that can be pretty a pretty strong factor in, in raising entry barriers for other players and making it more difficult to compete for other players and also in influencing downstream markets maybe uh, and, and, and shaping them in a way that might not concur with the opinion of the regulator how, how it should be. Thank you both. So despite Lisa Khan's comments as she was FTC chair, we know that Microsoft's deal with Bethesda was approved by the DOJ and the EU Commission last year. And this year, Microsoft announced that it's planning to acquire Activision Blizzard for, um, for around $69 billion. Should we expect the agencies to take a similar analysis as they did to the prior deal? Hey, thanks, Mary. So I think, you know, this comparison in the United States just really emphasizes how much things have changed. So the, the Bethesda acquisition, I, I, I believe, didn't get a second request, but it, um, I think it was it was clear within the first 30 days, uh, whereas we know that the uh, the Activision acquisition is, uh, you know, has gotten a second request um, and there's been a lot of press on it. Uh, you know, I think it, it makes sense to take a second and, and dive into what's going on in that transaction because it really uh, you know, provides a great font for analyzing a lot of different themes that are uh, important in the gaming space, and I think going to become more important. You know, if I were if I were teaching an antitrust class, I think I would just use this merger uh, as the final exam question and say, "Talk to me about everything." Um, you know, when the when it was first announced, the 
the focus of most of the reports was on you know basically console gaming uh whether or not you know basically playstation uh would still have access to uh the marquee activision titles and you know microsoft you know very quickly promised that they would honor all of their commitments uh seemingly to you know put out that fire uh but there are a lot of other different um you know, potential impacts of, on competition. I think those are starting to evolve and come out in the press and be discussed a little bit more. Uh, you know, so one is what is the impact on uh, the, the over the top, the, the stream gaming uh, market, right? So we have, um, you know, Microsoft obviously through the Xbox you can stream and then PlayStation 2 and on the computers. Uh, it, it's not clear what the terms of access will look like there. Um, but more importantly, I think, and this is really where I believe the FTC is, is probing deeply, uh, what does this look like for Game Pass, which is, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, it's Microsoft's subscription service. They uh, frame it as the Netflix of gaming. The idea is that you pay a monthly fee and you have access to a certain amount of games that are available on a library. Um, and, you know, there's some real concerns there that uh, with the Game Pass basically functioning as a loss leader at Microsoft, that they could get a bunch of great uh, titles, uh, you know, highly demanded content, put it on there for what boils down to a very cheap price per play uh, across all of them and make it impossible for other over the top to, to compete with that. Or maybe you end up in a uh subscription model war a little bit that's happened in the tv in the united states uh, and that really scares some people and i think it makes sense for the ftc to be probing that uh really intently uh, and then finally there is what does this acquisition do for microsoft's other businesses right uh, it just acquired nuance a couple of years ago uh, which is voice recognition software uh, it obviously has the azure business line uh, obviously, Microsoft is, uh, you know, the the, the dominant uh, provider of office services. Uh, there's just a, a lot of businesses there, and it's not clear what the interplay between these all will be, whether or not this allows them to either uh, create or fortify an advantage in separate markets or whether or not it's benign. Um, but these are all the types of things the FTC is looking at, as they should, uh, and it really shows just how uh, the analysis into gaming and antitrust is uh, become much more robust and, and, and much more detailed. Yeah, I, I don't have much to add on the substance and the underlying issues that Brandon has uh, just described so well. So maybe let me say a few words on why I'm going to watch this case with particular interest. Uh, I don't, <laughs> I don't always defend what the European Commission is doing. Uh, naturally, I sometimes uh, strongly disagree uh, with them, as, as you can imagine. But one has to make them the compliment that they have often been quite pragmatic lately, specifically in merger cases. And uh, we've seen this play out recently in cases like Amazon MGM uh, or Google Fitbit, in which the cases were either cleared, despite all the political buzz behind them, uh, cleared pretty pragmatically. Uh, in Google Fitbit, the commission was open to accepting pretty far-reaching commitments on data storage and uh, really try to enable the deal, I, I had the impression. And I think this is an interesting sign uh, because despite the uh, view that's sometimes out there that the commission is going hard after US uh, companies, I think they really want to be perceived as a regulator that also gets to practical solutions. And I'm curious whether we're also going to see that in Microsoft Activision. 
uh, of course, getting to these practical solutions always means that you have to talk to the commission in a constructive way to get such results. And uh, this is the way that, that we prefer to operate. Uh, but back to the context and, and, and your, your question, Mary, I'm particularly curious how the commission is going to deal with Microsoft Activision in this context and whether this will get quick clearance or whether the commission will deep dive into the type of issues that Brandon has raised. Earlier this month, it came out that the FTC actually closed its investigation into Sony's planned acquisition of Bungie. Was this deal being looked at the same way as the Microsoft Activision deal? Thanks, Mary. Yeah, I can uh, speak to that a little bit. So full disclosure, uh, we are, Wilson Sonsini represented Bungie in the deal. Um, you know, we were a little surprised when we got the second request. We thought that the transaction, you know, just on its face was not one that would raise uh, competition questions or any competitive concerns. Uh, but we were able to work collaboratively with the FTC, answer their questions really quickly, get them to understand uh, both Sony and Bungie's uh, motivations for, for doing the deal. Uh, and we were actually able to get the deal closed uh, much more quickly than really anyone anticipated. And we we're very pleased that the uh, FTC was willing to work with us uh, so cooperatively. Um, it is interesting to think about this transaction in terms of Microsoft Activision or you know, even other potential large scale gaming deals that may be coming down the pipeline. Um, you know, it's, I think it, it's still public right now that uh, the FTC is uh, currently investigating, uh, has a second request out for that deal. And a lot of other jurisdictions uh, throughout the globe have announced uh, their investigation into the deal. Uh, Europe, uh, the European Commission, the CMA in the United Kingdom, Brazil, New Zealand, the ACCC in Australia. So there's a lot of attention uh, being paid to the Activision deal uh, and probably for, for good reason. Um, it's a much different type of deal, uh, you know, whereas Bungie had, you know, for the most part, a, a single game that was its franchise, uh, you know, plenty of exciting things in the pipeline, but, you know, for current competition today, it's really just the one game. Uh, and it's a game that is really premised upon opening up the funnel, uh, driving as many players as possible, uh, driving uh, something that's called the industry ubiquity of gaming. So uh, really trying to uh, get as many people uh, as possible onto the platform and enjoying the game, uh, free to play at the beginning. So uh, really no, no barriers for the, for the player. Um, Activision, on the other hand, is a you know the, one of the leading publishers of, of games uh, in the world, uh, many uh, critical titles, uh, and it's being bought by a company that has had a history of engaging in monopolistic or otherwise anti-competitive practices in the past. And for that reason, we're not very surprised to see that uh, many agencies are taking a long look and really investigating not just what the Activision acquisition means with respect to uh, the games in the catalog right now, or maybe Microsoft's, you know, immediate, uh, you know, gaming options, you know, Xbox and even Game Pass. But what this looks like moving forward, uh, how this will position Microsoft to uh, participate and, you know, potentially even try to uh, exert more influence in the gaming market moving forward. A few weeks ago, it came out that the FTC is seeking to block Meta's acquisition of Within Unlimited and its popular virtual reality app, Supernatural. Can you discuss the concerns the FTC has and whether this is setting a new precedent for gaming in the virtual reality landscape or even merger enforcement in general? Yeah, thanks. Uh, just a, a super interesting development in, uh, in the gaming space and really in antitrust merger enforcement uh, generally. Um, you know, I think Ever since Lena Khan came into power at the FTC, there's been a lot of talk about 
a new wave of enforcement and a new uh, new approach to antitrust. I'd be more aggressive and focus on uh, different tests and different features than uh, than than traditional has been the focus, uh, but for the most part, we really haven't seen too much in the way of a, of a different approach uh, until this complaint landed, um, or you know, technically it's a, a motion for a TRO while the uh, FTC continues to finish up the complaint that'll be filed in administrative court at the FTC. Um, but it's a, a super interesting. They, they, you know, one of my big takeaways is that they are alleging two different types of horizontal harms. Um, one is a kind of traditional a horizontal approach looking at uh, basically apps that can VR apps that can be used for fitness, uh, saying that uh, both Facebook or Meta uh, and within compete in the space and there'll be a lessening of competition there. Um, that's a really difficult case for the FTC to make because there are just so many different players there. Um, and the second horizontal theory is definitely an interesting and a new one, and that is that uh, Meta is actually taking itself out of the market as a future potential competitor in this space by acquiring within. So the, the FTC is basically alleging that without this acquisition, FTC would have actually developed a competing product uh, and launched that. Uh, and there would have been two options available to consumers rather than just within moving over to Meta. Um, and that's really interesting because in, you know, the it's it's called a, a you know, nascent competition uh, argument. That's usually what happens is the uh, the big company goes and acquires a smaller one to prevent it from encroaching on its space, not to uh, have to prevent itself from having to uh, develop the product. Um, but what I think is really interesting here is uh, the the allegations that are in the complaint to support the theories, but aren't really tied directly to the theory. So even though these are horizontal claims, the FTC is really looking at uh, much broader issues. Um, you know, they are talk about the you know. Meta's uh, entire vertical stack within VR, you know, so it has the the platform and the the games that it develops, uh, and also the uh, the you know the Oculus product. Um, and, you know that looks a lot more like some of the more traditional tech cases that have been brought, but not in this type of way. Um, a second one uh, thing to point out is that the complaint does spend a good amount of time talking about uh, Meta's past acquisitions. Uh, and while they're not actually uh, trying to go and unwind any of those acquisitions, uh, it does kind of signal a little bit of a concern for a, a roll-up theory. Um, you know, and my final takeaway here uh, is that uh, the FTC pays a little bit more attention to you know, the concept of the metaverse or, you know, the, the next generation uh, gaming platform that, that, you know, that many people are working on. Um, it had been kind of thought that the FTC wasn't taking that so seriously, uh, but this complaint shows that they are and that they are looking at uh, not just future competition, but, you know, entire future uh, industries and markets. Um, and I think, you know, this is a, a shot across the bow for uh, a lot of not just gaming companies, but, you know, tech firms in general. Thomas, you recently authored an article concerning whether antitrust were a built-in feature as we explore the metaverse. Is the metaverse something gaming companies are going to have to consider in this field? Yeah, thanks, Mary. <laughs> I love the question. I think there's different answers to that. So uh, my answer as a consumer uh, is pretty clear. I'd, I'd love to see the creativity we have in the gaming space becoming the foundation of the metaverse and which we're moving around. Uh, whether the economics of the metaverse are going to be interesting for every gaming company is something that uh, is hard for me to tell. But of course, I think it's not a coincidence that gaming companies are the strongest players in the metaverse. 
gaming world just has a 10 to 15 year head start to the rest of the industry when it comes to 3D engines and the uh, processes behind creating uh, immersive content. From a legal perspective, uh, well, the, the question we're dealing with right now is, uh, will the antitrust law for the metaverse, specifically internet through uh, internet 3.0, um, will this be any different than antitrust law in internet 2.0? And I think the answer is probably similar to the answer to the old question, whether internet 2.0 would change antitrust law that we were facing uh, some years ago. The basic outline is the same. The basic concepts of antitrust law are still the same, but we have seen new rules emerge. We have seen old rules having to be adapted uh, to uh, an interactive type of internet. Uh, internet 2.0 has not led to a decentralized internet and has not removed the existence of large companies, quite the opposite. And I think that uh, as the discussion on the matter was and internet 3.0 uh, emerges, um, there is more and more realization that they will not work in a completely decentralized way. Uh, this starts with obvious bottlenecks, such as certain gateway devices uh, that will be needed, be it a virtual reality headset, be it a handheld device uh, with a simple screen interface, aka a cell phone. Uh, and uh, platforms linked to these devices will probably uh, be used to access the, um, the metaverse. And I, I recognize that uh, many metaverse concepts commonly emphasize that the, the metaverse is device agnostic, but um, companies will invest in developing the best devices out there and uh, may add other features that convince consumers to use them and no other device. And this may unlock network effects and the small handful of players or even single players could acquire market power or even become dominant. Uh, and I would not exclude that the same could happen uh, in many other metaverse contexts. And uh, blockchain and NFT-based transactions are a fantastic way, way to, to decentralize the internet, uh, to provide ownership tools to people generating content. But people are as I said, starting to recognize that at least some processes need to be re-centralized to make them work in practice. And this leads me to believe that the metaverse will not remove the relevance of antitrust law. But in many regards, we will see similar issues coming up um, to what we're seeing now. Um, some issues will likely be even more pronounced and uh, we will see if there's new rules coming towards us to deal with them. Uh, for example, I'm, I'm mindful of the data topic that we already addressed. Uh, think of the incredible amounts of additional and valuable data points generated in a metaverse. I'm sure that access to this data will be a highly relevant antitrust topic of the metaverse era. And uh, there will be a lot of new topics on top of this from distribution antitrust law uh, questions uh, to addressing interoperability. Uh, but before I'm getting carried away, maybe Brand, do you have anything to add on this? Yeah, thanks. No, I mean, you're, in my opinion, you're one of the, the thought leaders on these questions, and it's great to hear your thoughts. Um, I totally agree. 
uh, with everything you said. I, I also I wonder uh, what the kind of uh, antitrust effects will be on the metaverse for those areas that people aren't always thinking about when they think of the metaverse. Uh, you touched on interoperability. I think that's a huge one, and not just interoperability on the metaverse, you know, on the actual uh, you know devices that people use and the software that they are engaging with, uh, but the back end, uh, you know, the the data centers, uh, the interconnects, uh, the software stacks and network. Uh, virtualizations that need to occur for the metaverse to work really just requires an incredible amount of coordination and collaboration between different parts of the economy that, uh, you know, historically have been hard to realize, at least without, uh, you know, certain prompts, you know, we go back to the smartphone wars and uh, SCPs. Um, you know, I, I think just this week we saw Broadcom uh, announce its intent to acquire VMware, which obviously has uh, one of the market leaders in, in network virtualization. Uh, and I saw that deal, and the first thing I thought is, well, that's a play for the metaverse. They want to uh, further embed themselves in the backbone of what they see the next stage of gaming to be. Um, could be totally wrong. That's, that was just my you know gut instinct. But um, you know I think there's just so many. This is such a huge market. This isn't like a new product coming. This is uh, an enormous thing that will have antitrust consequences up and down consumer suppliers, uh, providers, just you know, throughout. Thank you both. So as a closing thought, I was hoping if you could leave the listeners with the biggest piece of advice you could give to founders concerning the antitrust space in gaming. Sure, thanks, Mary. And uh, you know, thank you again for organizing this and for inviting me. This has been a lot of fun. Um, for me, uh, the number one piece of advice is to uh, always have antitrust in the back of your mind, both as something that you need to uh, be sure you're complying with because nobody wants to uh, be getting phone calls from the government, uh, but also as something that is a tool that you have at your disposal if you know how to use it appropriately. Um, there is just a lot, you know, the current zeitgeist in antitrust uh, cannot be overstated. You know, it's in the Wall Street Journal uh, at least once a week in the front page. Uh, there's a new you know, entire cottage industry of people reporting on thinking about antitrust. Uh, the agencies are growing. Uh, they're getting more money. There's just more activity overall in this space uh, that provides opportunities. If you think that you are uh, being harmed, you should consult an attorney. Uh, if you uh, are just theorizing and thinking about your future and are worried about certain uh, events that occur or bottlenecks or maybe there's some uh, unknown M&A in the space, uh, you know, under the radar M&A. So, you know, it's one thing we didn't talk about here uh, earlier, but you know, only certain deals are actually reportable to the federal government. Uh, smaller deals are not reportable, uh, but you may know about them and they may be negatively affecting you in a way that, uh, you know, just the someone who isn't as engaged in the industry will not know about. Uh, you should talk to your attorney because uh, there's a lot that can be done, a lot of opportunity, uh, and it's an important part of uh, every company's uh, you know, growth and success moving forward. Yeah, I uh, certainly 100% agree with Brandon. Uh, I mean, that small players have uh, never had better leverage to use antitrust tools to help them if they're facing issues with large platforms and other players. And uh, what's the other biggest piece of advice? I, I think the other biggest piece of advice uh, overlaps with what many colleagues in many other episodes of this great podcast have already said. And again, thanks, Mary, uh, for organizing this podcast. The message is reach out to us at an early stage. 
if you're merging, reach out early so we can prepare the process, help you to get around the pitfalls. If you're updating your distribution agreements, um, if you have doubt whether they're compliant with EU law uh, when you uh, go into European markets, contact us early. When you think that your salespeople are discussing the wrong kinds of topics with their peers and other companies, don't be shy, reach out to us. We'll be quick to tell you that there are no issues if there are none. If a client or potential client wanted to get in touch with you guys, what would the process be like? You know, for starters, um, you know, Thomas and I and the entire Antitrust team work with our uh, TTG and corporate colleagues daily on these questions, you know, both in the gaming space and just more broadly. And obviously, you know, one of the benefits of working with Wilson Sonsini is you get to learn from the experience of other companies, right? So uh, it, it's pretty unlikely that you'll come up with a question or a situation that we haven't thought about in at least some type of context. Um, and in terms of getting in touch with us, it's really as easy as reaching out to your contact. Odds are Thomas or I have spoken to them already and worked with them already. If not, it's very easy for us to get in touch. Um, and if you aren't already working with Wilson Sonsini, you can find us easily on the website, uh, www.wsgr.com. And I'm Brendan Kaufman. And Thomas, can you tell us about Europe? Yeah, thanks, Brendan. Uh, same is obviously true for for Europe, uh, same homepage. <laughs> and we're happy to cover all your questions related to Europe. And when I say Europe, I mean specifically the EU itself, uh, but also the main jurisdictions in the EU, including uh, Germany and France, for example. But we also have a great UK team that can also cover the questions that pop up uh, with regard to Great Britain. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for your time today. Really appreciate all of your commentary. Wilson Sincini advises a wide variety of clients in the gaming industry, as you've just heard. If you'd like more information about legal issues arising in the gaming space, please check out our Electronic Gaming Group's newsletter. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to any member of our Electronic Gaming Group. Thanks for tuning in, everyone.